Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to another episode of Hands in Motion. On this episode, Nora Barrett joins us to talk about wound care and hand therapy. Nora is an OT CHT who recently obtained a certification in wound care. She gives us the most up-to-date information on assessing and treating wounds, shares with us some clinical pearls, what to do and what not to do, and how we as hand therapists can advocate for our patients and their wounds. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Nora. Okay, so welcome back, everybody. We're here with Nora, and tonight we're going to discuss a little bit about wound care and the therapist's role in wound care. But first, Nora, can you give us a little bit of a professional background on what you do and what area you're working in and all that good information? Sure, sure. So I'm an OT, I'm a certified hand therapist. And then during COVID time off, when I wasn't as busy in the clinic for outpatient hand care, I got a certification in wound care. And I was basically doing it online through a program and a network that you can either go to live courses, which shut down because of COVID, or you could do it live online in specific times, or you could just do it on your own timeframe. And so I chose to do it on my own time frame, and then sat for a certification after I completed that. And I would tell you that my day-to-day job or role hasn't changed, but I definitely feel more educated in treating wounds. So I, like most of the members of ASHT, I'm in an outpatient hand practice. I just so happen to have a really strong interest in wounds that probably started back in burns when I did a burn gosh, rotation as a student, and then found myself working in burn units, developing in my career through the last, gosh, 15 to 17 years. Oh, wow. So just from that point on, you kind of just found a love for wound care. And I know everybody kind of goes to you. You're the go-to person for wound care throughout ASHT. (laughs) You're always getting pulled in many directions. (laughs) I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I I enjoy it. It's one of my favorite topics. I always like to say I love blood and guts. And I do (laughs) think I do attribute it to those days on the burn unit. I mean, that's really where I got my fair share of knowledge and working with really closely with nurses and physicians who treated the therapist as equal. And we were looking at those wounds probably more than anybody else. We, I would go in on burn units and observe dressings down and get a feel for what wounds were doing day to day and which ones needed attention day to day, what my job was, how that affected motion, strength, functional use, ADLs, all those different things. And so from there, Yes, I think burns took me into the wound world and I was able also to take some of those dressings and some of that knowledge from the burn care world and bring it into the outpatient hand clinic. So yes, I would say that that is definitely what what drove my interest and continues to pique my interest still. I do. I love to treat a wound. I do. (laughs) Don't we all love blood and gut sometimes? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Better than peeling sticky things off of hair on people's arms. Yes. (laughs) That's funny. So you're the role of the hand therapist within wound care. Typically do traditional OTs, PTs do wound care, or is that, is that something that's 
was and changing or kind of give us a little bit so of So that's update. a great question. Yeah. And a lot of it is actually state-based. And I think a lot of it too is comfort-based. And when I initially looked into starting this program, I had a few people say to me, like, why would you even do that? It's not in the curriculum. You know, therapists don't really need to know it or some states OTs can't do it. But I think because of the states I've lived in and because of the areas I've practiced, which is mostly inpatient burn care, outpatient burn care, and then outpatient hands, I've found myself treating wounds. Whether you want to or not, a lot of us are seeing post-surgical patients, and we're also seeing patients with histories of diabetes, vascular disease, lymphatic issues, venous issues. And so that translates to wounds that don't always heal perfectly. And so I basically found myself in those scenarios where I was treating wounds and I have been lucky enough to be in states where I can bill for that or at least encompass it into something else I'm doing to be able to treat them. Actually at the ASHT meeting, when there was the special interest group meeting during lunch, one of the therapists that was there, her special interest is working on a burn unit. And so I thought that was really interesting that she, she was actually doing this as well. And so I think that's, I guess, for those listeners to look into what your state allows and who, who does have the ability to do that. I know here in Texas, therapists do, although I have to say we've seen more and more I guess, wound care moving toward nursing. But I think as hand therapists, we still see quite a bit in the clinic just with post-operatively too. So maybe not the those stage four ulcer, that kind of wound that you think of learning that I learned about in PT school, but definitely wound care that we're seeing post-operatively or I think that is coming through some of our clinics. Exactly, Kara. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's basically check with your state to find out what exactly you're allowed to do. And PTs in general probably have a a few more quote unquote privileges. And correct, we're not seeing any of the stage four ulcers. That is a lot of the work I had to do to get the certification is to know those things, but that's definitely not what I'm treating. I'm not at a wound clinic. I'm in an outpatient hand practice working with surgeons several days a week directly with patients coming in to see them in clinic and then in an outpatient practice. So I think that's a huge part of it. But AOTA also for those OTs has a position paper and a statement on it as well. So that's definitely something. And they've updated that a couple of times, but that's definitely something that the OTs can look up to see kind of what, what's in our scope of practice. Can you tell us a little bit about the certification? What is involved in that? I know you said you did that online, but whether it's online in person, what do you have to do in order to become a wound Well, you tell me the official title. (laughs) What are the letters? (laughs) So that's interesting. You ask, there's actually two, there's two different types of certifications. What I have is called a WCC, which is wound care certified. And that is actually very therapist friendly. And that I got through, you actually are certified through the National Alliance for Wound Care and Ostomy is kind of the governing board for that. And I basically did an online program through the Wound Care Education Institute, which is WCEI, and their website is WCEI.net. And they basically, once you start that process, they kind of set you up for how to proceed. You decide if you're going to be online, live, online on your own. And I do believe they are bringing some in-person courses back. And from there, you then are on your own for studying. You take, I think, three different practice tests and you have to score a certain level. You decide, okay, I'm ready to take the actual certification. And then they forward your results and information 
to NAWCO, who then contacts you about sitting for the exam. Um, so I will say when I was researching this, Emily Altman, who's a PT at a Hospital for Special Surgery in New York, was super, super helpful. She had done it as well and gave me some great information about contacting WCEI and then getting the WCC. The other option is the CWS, which is Certified Wound Specialist. They tend to be a bit more drawn to PAs, nurses, advanced care practitioners. It was a little bit harder. If I wanted to do that, it would have been a little bit harder for me to basically state my qualifications as a therapist for as far as hours and my eligibility to take their program. So now that I have a WCC, in theory, I could go back and do a CWS. And I believe Emily Altman is doing that or is in the process, but I have enough on my plate. So I figured I'm good for now, but you can even get beyond that. You can get an advanced wound care certification. So I think as a therapist in, in entry level or a baseline WCC or a CWS is plenty. The amount of, of work I had to do and learn well beyond post-operative wounds was quite extensive. And so I'm, I'm pretty satisfied with, with the level that I was trained to then be able to bring it to the hand therapy community. And that was essentially one of my big goals was to be able to translate this to hand therapists and say, okay, here's what we need to know. And you know, here's our role in doing this. So did you have to have any hands-on training that goes with the certification. So it's all book. No. book. Yeah. It's it all was book all work. book. And then basically I had to verify years of practice and then approximately how many hours slash years, either with wound care, burn care, whatever it was, but it was reasonable. Okay. You know, I worked in inpatient a little bit and inpatient wounds are totally nursing. They're very territorial about that. But then I would, you know, go three floors down and do outpatient and see all the post-op wounds that came in and, and even some of the, you know, the more challenging wounds that just wouldn't heal and those kind of things. So, you know, just going from floor to floor, you know, my role changed. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. And I think an outpatient, like when I worked in the city, I was seeing gunshot wounds. When I worked in a more rural area out in Oregon, I was seeing folks who were out hunting and slashed themselves with a, you know, a dirty knife that had been through an animal. So like you, you end up getting the gamut, but you do end up seeing wounds. Inevitably they do come into the clinic regardless of where you practice. And so that was kind of my motivation for making sure I was up to par, especially as I did start to do, you know, more lecturing and and writing on the subject, but then also just to pass it on to folks who maybe don't see it all the time, get some simple strategies for here's what you need to know. And here's, here's how to, here's how to go about it. How did your certification and, and the training and I guess studying that you did, how has that changed your practice or what have you implemented that you've seen the biggest change in how you approach wounds, burns in a hand therapy clinic? Great question. So I think the biggest thing that as a therapist we are is we're eyes on the wound, right? A surgeon or a physician refers to us and sees that patient and then doesn't perhaps see them for you know two weeks or four weeks or whatever it is. I think the number one role we have is identifying infection. We are the eyes on that patient. And if something starts to go wrong, we are the first one who's going to know about it. We're also the education to that patient for how to be aware. So I think the biggest thing I recognized was kind of the continuum or the cycle of normal contamination on any wound. Any wound has bacteria identifying that, okay, that's, that's actually happening to gosh, this wound is infected. What are the signs of that's showing me that? I think that's a, a really big one for sure. 
And then I think the other one is just the way I assess or approach the wound. What am I looking at knowing what the parameters are for measuring a wound and, and doing that each day or each time I see the patient consistently. So I know if it's the same size or getting bigger, okay, we've got a problem versus, oh, this is decreasing in size. This wound is, is healing. You know, that's a good thing. So I think those are the biggies. I think from a classification standpoint, one of the biggest things that's different in therapy from when I was kind of going through initial CHT studying was everyone was using that red, yellow, black kind of characteristic and the color method. And what I learned is that's basically just a simplification. What we should really be doing is talking about wound bed characteristics in the form of tissue, different types of tissues that you're seeing in the wound bed from anything that's epithelial tissue to necrotic tissue, to granulation tissue, to hypergranulation tissue, to you know anything that's open or exposed like bone or tendon. Those are the things we should be identifying. And then from a color standpoint, there's other colors you're going to see in a wound besides yellow, black, or red, right? There can be green, which indicates pseudomonas. There can be a pink, which is pale, which indicates the wound's hypoxic. You know, what do you do about that? So I think those are the things that that I started to expand and become more knowledgeable about and realize, okay, we were kind of oversimplifying this and there's really no need to. We're a smart group of folks that, that can assess, we're trained to assess. So I think that that was probably the biggest thing for me is a more in-depth evaluation of what I was seeing and recognizing, is this normal? Is this what's supposed to be happening versus, okay, this is a problem, right? What I'm looking at is, is not a good sign. And this is something that, you know, the physician needs to know about. So those clinicians out there that are seeing wounds and maybe are not certified, documentation-wise, what do you recommend? I know you just said about documenting the size every session. What are some other things that you recommend those clinicians follow through with and be sure to document? Sure. So I think for size, the biggest thing to know is we always document in centimeters. That's pretty standard. And then we document length by width by depth. Length always goes in the longitudinal pattern of the hand and arm and is always the longest portion, even if the wound is not uniform. Width is side to side across, ulnar to radial or opposite, always the longest portion. And then depth is basically a sterile Q-tip put into the deepest portion of the wound and met with either a pen or something that can indicate on that line. So that's the standard of measure for how we would document the size of the wound. Other things that should be documented are the colors that are seen in the wound, the exudate type. So is it sanguinous? Is it serosanguinous? Is there pus? Those types of things. That's a big one. The temperature of the peri wound. So you're literally using your gloved hand to feel around the wound. Is it warm, which is normal in the inflammatory phase versus this is you know not the inflammatory phase and this is definitely warmer. Is there odor? And we always assess odor after we take the dressing off and after the wound is washed, because it is normal that some necrotic tissue can cause odor. It's normal that certain dressings, especially if they're occlusive and completely are, or semi-occlusive can even create sweat. So that's normal that that creates odor. So we always assess odor afterwards. So that's a big one. And then also simple, but the amount of exudate. When you take a bandage off, is the wound wet or dry? And then how much of the bandage is saturated? So those are the big types of things that are simple enough that we can identify as a therapist, no matter what kind of training we have. That's some good recommendations. I think sometimes, you know, in the clinic, you kind of, 
I don't want to say you forget, but it is really important to document those things. You're trying to worry about getting everything and, you know, you just kind of glance over it and give a quick, oh, yep, it's open, closed, a little bit of drainage, a lot of drainage. Um, and I think it's really important. Agreed. It is because that's going to tell you, Exidate tells you things. It tells you, number one, what type of dressing you need to use, how absorptive the dressing is. But number two, it also tells you if something's really exudative and we're moving from the inflammatory to the hyperplastic stage or to the fibroplastic stage, that's a problem, right? Especially if it's prolonged stages. Like those are the times when we say, okay, this, this should be closing up or there's too much exudate for this time frame. So that's the type of thing that is definitely important to document. And there are actually, there's actually, it goes from none to scant to minimal to moderate to larger copious. That's all laid out in percentages of how much the dressing is saturated. And just to give a little plug, I will be doing an update on the wound care for the hand therapist for ASHT for a webinar. I think it's going to be coming up in the next couple of months. I don't know that it's scheduled yet, but it's basically in the works. I forget when the last, it was a while ago, a nurse did an update for us. It was back in, I'm going to say 2014 or 15. So I will be doing an update soon on that. And my idea and my plan, whenever I give a talk like that is I like to put the slide in and then. And then as a handout, you can print it out as a PDF and use that. I would laminate that and put it in your clinic for basically wound bed characteristics. I have a slide on tissue type. I have a slide on exudate. And my recommendation is just print that out, laminate it, have it in your clinic. So it's your go-to when you're documenting. So you know exactly what terminology and wording to use. And then, I mean, idealistically in the ideal world, we'd all be on the same page. But if enough of us are doing it, I think it becomes more uniform. I can't wait for that. I think that'll be... That'll be fantastic. Thank you for, for offering to do that, especially now knowing that you've gone through this certification and can bring the most up to date and what, what the wound care community is using. And I think you're right. I think that happens a lot with, with several of our things that it might not be like, how do things become what every therapist uses? Why do things become a trend? Why do they, because we all start using them. And if we all can get on the same page, of wound care documentation, then that becomes second nature that you just automatically, you're documenting size, you're documenting smell and all of that. Exactly. My least favorite. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Using the same language. Yeah. Foul, pungent, (laughs) such fun words, right? (laughs) Fun fact about me, I keep a little bit of mentholatum in my desk (laughs) because I can't handle smells, those smelly hands that come out of cast and whatnot. So the smells of wounds, I have a hard time time with that. (laughs) Helps having masks on lately. (laughs) Hey, two great things that came out of COVID, wearing a mask and asking every patient to wash their hands before they sit down. Absolutely. And you don't feel bad about it. Absolutely. <laughs> One side note, Kara, if you ever have a stinky hand from an orthosis, no wounds, by the way, there will be no wounds. You will not <laughs> use this with wounds. Mouthwash. Wash the splint out with mouthwash and ah. it takes that smelliness away. No wounds. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Not agreed, but I for like sure. the tip. Yeah. And actually a nurse told me that when I worked mm. in the hospital, she goes, use mouthwash. It works fantastic. I'm like, all right. So just a little side note. <laughs> yeah, I dig that. that yeah. tip. <laughs> you know, I'm getting referrals from several different physicians and it's interesting how the 
procedure for wound care for each physician varies greatly. Ooh, like terribly. So yeah. Where where do you start? I mean, okay, I know physician A does this, physician B does this, physician C does this. It's like, how do you keep everything straight? I mean, yes, you want to make the physician happy, but where do you stand with that? Like, how do you follow through? if you are seeing from different physicians? That's a great question. And that brings to my mind four different things that surgeons do differently. One is sutures. Two is when to wash. Three is wet to dry dressings, which literally makes my stomach crawl. And four is pin care. So those are probably four of the top things that are not uniform across the board that surgeons are all differing on. And the number one uniform language I can speak to them is a research article. So in a lot of the talks I give, including the one I will give for ASHT for the update webinar, I have different resources for what you can bring the surgeon when they tell you to put a wet to dry dressing on a patient. That is old practice. That is not something we do anymore. There are so many better options, number one. And two, wet to dry dressings are terribly painful for a patient it's a procedure, not a dressing. It spreads bacteria. There's just many, many reasons not to use it, but they do because oftentimes it's what they learned from who taught them. Even though we've got great studies that date back to 1987 that tell us this is not the best practice and there's better options. So basically the idea behind what I do is identify when they're using it, find things in our clinic that I either have or can simply order that would take the place of it and go to them with an article on here's why we don't use it. And here's what we already have in our clinic that can be used in place of it. So that's one major basic avenue I would use to get them to basically be up to practice and to raise the standards. So my experience over the past several years, it's actually went from very complex wound care. They're really basic now. Like one physician is like pretty much just water. Like I don't want any, nothing chemical on it. You know, it's just basic antibacterial soap and water. Yeah. So if there's a wound that's healing well, it's looking good. It's healing well, your size is decreasing. There's not abnormal exudate, no odor, no heat or redness around it. There's zero reason to use any sort of cleanser or topical or chemical soap and water is totally fine, including tap water. Once in a while, someone might use saline, but it's not even necessary for the majority of wounds we're seeing in a clinic. Soap and water is just fine. And for the record, after 24 hours in a post-op dressing with sterile technique used to take the post-op dressing down after 24 hours, including sutures, soap and passing water is fine on a wound, even including sutures. There are still docs who will tell you, do not get this wet. And truthfully, I don't really fight that, but if I have them in the clinic, I'll probably wash around it. It's even standard technique in the wound world to wash the hand before sutures are removed. So that's one of those that just keeps coming back. But as long as it's not too extreme or too long, I will, okay, you know, for two more days, sure, don't wash this. But, but for the most part, soap and water is the best thing we can do for a burn or for sutures after the post-op dressing has been removed. My other question is, you did bring up pin care. Now, I get varied pin care follow-up, you know, nothing, zero form. You know, it kind of goes, you know, full circle, all different types of things. What is your opinion? So here's my take on it. 
in the wound world, the standard of care is alcohol to the pin site. So the silver protruding pin coming out of the hand gets alcohol. The skin around where the pin is protruding can get saline as a wash, but then dry dressing. No hydrogen peroxide, no xeriform cut into little strips and wrapped around it because that's moisture. Moisture, even though we like to keep wounds with a moist dressing, a pin is a direct tract into bone and too much moisture sitting on that surface is a direct line to osteomyelitis. So the standard of care in the wound world is a dry dressing. And that is a tough one to keep putting out there. And there is data for it. There are articles written on it. But yes, people have those all kinds of old kind of remedies, but essentially the updated standard of care is alcohol to the pin site, saline to the skin to cleanse. If it's looking good, daily is fine. If there's exudate every eight hours is the basic recommendation. But my theory also is the less a patient messes with it, the better. So if it's looking good, right? Hands off. Do you have some of these references that we could share with our listeners? We could add them to the show notes so that if there are some therapists that would like to discuss with their referring providers, they could do so. Sure. I can definitely hand you that, get you those. Yeah. Thank you. Have you found that referring providers have been receptive to change if you come to them with evidence? Absolutely. Yes. And new dressings. That's another thing, especially when you show someone. Yeah, a there's so really many works. Yes. That's it's more expensive initially, but if it's inexpensive, cause now it can stay on the patient for four to seven days, they can go home in it. They can reuse it or it's a, just a small amount they can cut and then reuse or, you know, whatever it is, gosh, it becomes way less expensive. It becomes easier for someone to manage at home. We can track it weekly now it's not as much of a problem. So once you find them something that's worked and, and by gosh, it's healing the wound even better. Right. <laughs> and so that usually speaks volumes. Yeah. It's been incredible to see the change in what's available dressing wise. But I think what's also interesting is a lot of those are now even just available. CVS. The, yes. Pharmacies, I mean, you can find online. so many different things. I actually remember after I graduated PT school, I don't know, 15 years ago, whatever. I was in Europe and we were shocked. I went with another girl that I was in PT school with and we went by a pharmacy and saw all these dressings that we had just learned about in school, but they were like, oh, you won't find these. You can't get these over the counter. I mean, all these dressings. And I thought, wow, this is amazing that they have these available. And it just took us a few more years, but it's been great to be able to say to patients, hey, you can go find this at CVS. You can, you can get this and some of them are just a generic it. brand. Yeah. And so it's available. There's an online forum. Yeah. I was actually just at the wound care conference out in Las Vegas. It's in Las Vegas every year in October, which is kind of spectacular. And I spoke with several of the vendors and said, okay, here's my scenario. I'm a hand therapist in an outpatient practice. Sometimes I'm seeing patients who are coming to me from two to four hours and maybe not get back to me for a month. I need to be able to get them the dressing. And sure enough, you know, they both, the two different, two or three different vendors of the products I use most that I was talking to, sure enough, oh yeah, we're available at CVS or we're available through, you know, mywound.com, whatever it is. And 
And sure enough, like there they are. I mean, I went into CVS the other day because I'm back on the East Coast and we have CVS again. And there was Tegaderm. They now have Tegaderm with a pad. I mean, just useful, useful stuff that a patient can definitely benefit from. There's foams there. It's essentially now endless, but our job is to help that patient with which one of those products is most appropriate. So a lot of what we do in our clinic is either print out a picture or find it online and literally create like, this is what you're going to go get. And you're going to use it for this long. Yeah. I would think that patient education is a huge part of wound care, taking care of wounds start to finish. I mean, even up to what do you do after it's healed and you want it to be a nice, pretty sure, scar. Because scar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you're exactly right. I mean, I literally just had a scenario where I was, I saw a patient for the the first time in initial evaluation, and she had an infected joint in her MCP of her index finger that involved the two tendons, the EIP and the EDC. So they were repaired, but there was what was determined a superficial infection at the time. So in meeting with her, assessed her wound, there was zero concern on my end at that point for infection at that point, based on, you know, heat, appearance, redness, swelling, exudate, all of the like. She saw the physician and the physician was pleased with the progress, but wasn't loving the superficial infection data. So she basically changed her antibiotic. And for whatever reason, a couple of days later, that patient had no signs of infection, nothing about the wound was changing, but she spiked a temp. And so thankfully due to education from the physician and myself, us warning her of, Hey, this is what to look for. She knew to go in and sure enough, she was, she had septic arthritis and ended up in two more surgeries. So it is exactly, it's all about patient education and talking to them the whole time you're assessing the wound, what you're seeing, what they should be looking for, especially if it's a scenario where someone's leaving you for you know a week, two weeks, or lives you know further out. I am a big fan of pictures too. And I have people sending me pictures all the time, but I do love those EMRs where we can communicate and patients can send photos so I can take a peek because that is super helpful. But that's a scenario where it was just purely her keeping an eye on her temperature and realizing, hey, I expect a temp. There was absolutely nothing in the wound showing that it was that it was septic or infected. Wow. Yeah, I agree that pictures are very helpful. One of our physicians that covers most of our wounds at the hospital takes excellent pictures. I mean, at every step of the way. And so I can see like what, by the time they get to me several weeks later, what does this look like? Are we on the right track? And I think that that, that can help tell the story of where they're at, where they've been, where they're at, and hopefully, and have an idea as to where they're going. Agreed. Cause that's super helpful for you to know, gosh, this has been open for three weeks or five weeks. It started much larger. You know, you're dealing with a significant amount of scar, right? At that point, if anything's taking longer than two to three weeks to close. And then the other part of it too, is if you know, there's an infection in there, you know, you're dealing with tissue. That's never going to be quite exactly the same. The stiffness is going to be a major problem. The gliding structures, you may have lost some integrity, either of bone, bony destruction. If you've got a scenario like septic arthritis, or some of that soft tissue that's either destroyed or just not gliding well. So you're definitely going to be dealing with, with not a perfect scenario and knowing that, right. Knowing what to expect for the patient, knowing what to expect for what either deformity or scar pattern or lag might occur. So yeah, those things are super, super helpful. And nowadays everyone has a cell phone and they're the first ones to say, Hey, do you want to see what it looked like? I'm always like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Send me that. <laughs> 
Yeah. I, I love when they have the pictures, even from the original injury or the initial injury, because it's sometimes, and it's good for them. I think at times to go back and look at them because they, you know, sometimes you have the patient in front of you and they're like, this isn't healing. It's taking forever. And you kind of have to put things a little bit in perspective with them just for, you know, Hey, go back and look at it, what it was three weeks ago and, or two weeks ago, and it is healing. And maybe, you know, it's not healing as exactly as we would, as fast as we would like it to be, but, you know, it just gives us a better idea of what it looked like two weeks ago. You know, if you do that documentation to see the progression, yes. to to be able to show them is huge too. Right. Right. What do you think, Carrie, anything else you have in mind or anything else, Nora, you want to mention? I would just say I did touch on wet to dry dressings, which makes my skin crawl. Um, But a couple (laughs) other things also make my skin crawl. And that is soaking in Epsom salts. It does absolutely nothing. (laughs) It is not anywhere supported in the literature. It might be soothing. Like if you're, you know, having a stressed out day and your skin is totally intact and you want to soak in a tub, that's great, but not for wounds. There's no place in it for wounds. It does essentially nothing. And the same thing goes for hydrogen peroxide. That is still something that people ask about and it's on people's shelves. And I get it because it, because of the old school kind of thoughts, but here's what we know about it. It is caustic or cytotoxic, however you want to say it to good cells, right? To healthy cells. It's not strong enough to kill bacteria in infected cells. So essentially it's doing harm to the good. It's doing nothing to the bad. So it's doing nothing. Why use it? So get it out of your practice. Those are some good recommendations. Thanks. (laughs) You got it. And please, everyone. (laughs) Dump the hydrogen peroxide. Dump it. (laughs) All right. Well, Nora, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners will too as well. And don't forget, look for the updated webinar through ASHT coming to you soon. You got it. Thanks so much, ladies. It was fun to be with you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.